Actually, before we go to 1 Thessalonians, I want to take you to uh, Psalm, Psalms, chapter 47. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me. To Psalm 47. Just as we, uh, as we look around the world and we watch what's happening, we see what's going on in the Middle East with Israel and the Palestinians and pray through all these things. And it's, it's hard to watch everything going on, isn't it? We, like our, uh, we know that, that God's at work. And I've just found so much encouragement in the scripture the last few weeks about um, the Lord, the great king over all the earth to whom all nations answer. And so would you stand with me? I want to read uh, Psalm 47 this morning, which is titled, God is King over all the earth. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone down, gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises to him with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather together as the people of God, of, a of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So, Lord, this morning as we come to spend some time with each other in your word, Father, ultimately we want to sit at the feet of your son, Jesus. And I thank you that Jesus is seated in heaven. We thank you that Jesus is king over all the nations of the earth. They all belong to him. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you're working out your plans in this world, unfolding your salvation story. And as we look around, God, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for peace in the Middle East, Lord. We pray for the Jewish people. We pray for uh, the Palestinian people. We pray, God, that uh, you would come, that Jesus would come and he would bring peace. And Lord, we pray for those that don't know you in the midst of that situation. We pray that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray for Jews who know Jesus. Would you strengthen them, Lord, and bless their ministry amongst the uh, the nation of Israel. We pray for the Palestinian people who know you, Lord, that you would bless the church there and those who know Jesus. And we pray, God, that your gospel would advance in these days as you unfold your, your purposes and your plans upon the earth. And so, Lord, as your word instructs us to do, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for Israel. May your will be done, Lord, and your kingdom come. And Father, as we come to your word this morning to 1 Thessalonians, we just open up our hearts to you and pray that you would speak to us, that you would uh, build up your church, Lord, that we would uh, mature in you as we spend the time together in your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You may be seated. All right, so we're going to pick up where we've been. We've been making our way through this uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Let me 
just to remind you this as we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, that Paul and Silas and Timothy together on, on the second missionary journey had established this church in Thessalonica. And um, they were driven out of the city by those who opposed their preaching to the Gentiles and the message of the gospel. So uh, they went next to the city of Berea. Acts chapter 16 tells us this. And there they taught uh, the word of God. And the Bereans turned out to be really good students of God's word. And then what happened in Berea was that those who had opposed them in Thessalonica followed them from that city to Berea. And they basically showed up there in Berea and forced them out of that city as well. And so Paul and uh, Paul did this. He left Silas and Timothy behind and he moved on to the city of Athens. And eventually uh, Silas and Timothy joined them. And so we read this in verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So Paul, he, he makes it to Athens after Berea, after Thessalonica. And uh, when he got there, he could not bear the thought of wondering what had happened to the Thessalonians. What was going on in their midst? What was happening in this new church that he had helped establish? And so he did this. He sent Timothy back. And Timothy went to Thessalonica to find out what was happening amongst these new believers, this new church. And the first word of this chapter, chapter 3, is that word, therefore. And when you see that in scripture, you're supposed to ask a question. Do you know what it is when you see the word, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? You ever heard that before? That's what you ask when you read the, when you read the Bible. The therefore should cause you to pause and you say, what is that therefore, therefore? And so Paul is tying this chapter, the things that we're going to read here, uh, back to the conversation that he has already, the things that he's already stated in chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is the first therefore in this book. In the first chapter, Paul explained how the Thessalonian church was born. He talked about their response to the gospel, the fruit of their faith, um, how they had become an example to the surrounding areas, their example of faith, love, and hope was proof that what had happened in the hearts of the Thessalonians was uh, genuine. They were truly a group of people chosen by the Lord. And then in chapter 2, Paul addressed accusations of those who were proclaiming him to be a false minister. They're saying, that guy's nothing but a charlatan. You know, he, he came into the city Maybe a quick ministry to make some money, kind of take some money from the church or whatever. A one and done sort of character who at the first sign of trouble just got out of Dodge. And so Paul shared his heart in chapter 2 as an apostle, as a pastor. He talked about his desire to nurture the people and how he cared for the believers of God in Thessalonica. And he compared his ministry, gave a metaphor of a mother with her nursing child. He compared his ministry to that of a father in a way that he encouraged and exhorted them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so Paul communicated that I, that I sought to nurture you like a parent would nurture a child. And it was God who brought the spiritual growth as the word of God was at work in you. So here's what we've seen so far in Thessalonians. In the first two chapters, 
Chapter 1, we have, we have the history of the church, the history of their spiritual birth, and proof of the genuineness of it. And then in chapter 2, we have an account of Paul's nurture of the church and his ministry as a, as a parent and the subsequent growth that came. And so Paul is actually following a pattern. I want to point this out to you as he makes his way through this letter, as we make our way through it. He is teaching in this pattern that the spiritual life mirrors physical maturity. That maturing in the physical is like a mirror of what happens in the spiritual. There are patterns of growth between the physical and the spiritual that are very similar. And so he speaks of them being born and them being nurtured. And here in this chapter, as he speaks about their growth, he's going to begin to talk about them learning to stand. Learning to stand. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to talk about learning to walk. But here, learning to stand. That if they're going to walk, they're going to first have to learn to stand. Actually, look at verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says this. For now we live, if you are standing fast, in the Lord. So he wants to speak about standing. I was, I was thinking about my, my kids. You know, it's going back a long time now when I remember uh, the first time that they stood. But every parent remembers those marks as you're raising your children because it's a significant thing when your kids stand. In fact, each of our kids were very different in how that came along. Like Jonah, the oldest, of course, he was like walking at 10 months, like just shy of 10 months. Then Eli, you know, 11 and a half. But Isabella... She didn't even stand up till she was 13 months old. And she didn't walk until she was 17 months old. To the point where we're like, what is going on? We need to call a doctor. You know, we're freaking out about her development. And we learned this, that the real problem was she just had four people who would pick her up and carry her around. And she didn't have to do any of these things. I was thinking, yeah, she had learned to snap her fingers. She probably never would have walked. So, you know... Remember those days as parents, if you're a parent, where you're concerned about the development of your children. Paul was concerned about the development of the church. And so he arrived in Athens and we find out he was beside himself with worry about this. Because by force he had been driven away from the church that he was the pastor of, the parent of, the apostle of, the church planter. He was concerned about their development. Concerned about their maturity. And he couldn't bear the unknown state of wondering what was going on with his children in the faith. He couldn't go back to the city, even though he wanted to. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, he tells us that he tried a number of times to go back. And he faced opposition from Satan. And so put this in a parental context for Paul here. What do you do? You can't be there as a parent. And he was a spiritual parent. And so he says, when I could bear it no longer, I didn't go myself because I was hindered from doing so, but I did the next best thing in my mind. And that was this, I sent Timothy. After Timothy had caught up to him in Athens, Paul said to him, pack your bags, you're going back to the Thessalonians. And Paul says, I was willing to be alone, even though, you know, he had recently been imprisoned and beaten and driven from these different cities by force. His concern for the Thessalonians was enough that he was willing to be by himself in Athens. And so we read this in verse 2. 
We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So he sends Timothy. We know this, that Timothy was not just Paul's son in the faith, but Paul says he was a, a trusted co-worker, a brother in the Lord. Timothy is uh, God's co-worker in the gospel was a servant. That's what else this can translate as, a co-worker or a servant of the gospel. He was a true minister, and Timothy's heart was not you know, to be served, but to serve. And he wasn't afraid to work. I mean, we know this about Timothy. He, if he was preaching alongside Paul or if he was helping out with, I don't know, the side gig of tent making, if it was, I think, cleaning church toilets, whatever it was, Timothy was willing to work. And Timothy knew how to work and he knew how to minister to God's people. And so Paul sends him to have ministry amongst these new Christians. And again, Timothy was going to step into a sort of parenting role new believers just like a baby has greater need for dependence upon parents it's like that for a new believer you know as i was preparing the message i was thinking to myself man what if the lord brought our church 50 new believers man praise the lord i pray that would happen that'd be awesome a hundred would be great but what if he brought 25 or 10 or even five and he did this amazing work. Would we be prepared to care for new believers? Because <laughs> new believers need care. There's spiritual nurturing, nurturing that is necessary in their growth. And what we're going to see here is that maturity in Christianity means this, that you have to learn how to stand. You have to learn how to feed yourself from God's word. To commune with your heavenly father and to walk by faith. But there is a process of growth, a process of discipleship in that growth. And so Timothy has this ministry to new believers. And Timothy can handle that. Paul had assigned him that. But really, you know, as far as we know, this was his first independent assignment from the Lord was to establish and to exhort the Thessalonians in their faith. And I love those words. You see them much in Paul's writings, to establish and exhort you in your faith. The NIV says it this way, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. I like those words. Establish. It means this, that Timothy was showing up to make sure that they were firm, that they were strengthened, that they were set fast, that they were stable in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He... he was sent to exhort the church or encourage the church. The Greek word is parakleo. It means to call one to your side. In my mind, it means this. Come and stand with me. Come and follow me as I follow Christ. It's a significant word in the New Testament because it's actually a title or a name that's given to the Holy Spirit. It's the ministry of the Spirit. He is our parakleo, our comforter, our one who calls us to his side. And so Timothy's assignment was to establish, to make stable the people of God, to exhort them, to comfort them, to encourage them, to call them to his side. And so here's a key point in this text. I'm going to give you a few key points this morning. First one is this. Timothy was sent to help the Thessalonians learn to stand. 
to learn to stand. Again, you know, thinking about our children learning to stand, remember when that happened? You know, no child comes out of the womb and just stands up in the hospital room, do they? That'd be pretty weird. You know, they come out of the womb and start walking around and say, you know, is there anything to eat around here? No, that would be, and talking, you know, it'd be crazy. We know that's not how it works. As a parent, when that new child comes into this world, you coddle them and you hold them. And as the months go by, you begin to stand them up on their feet, you know, and hold them and let those legs and those knees and those feet begin to bear a bit of weight. And then as they start getting stronger and get some strength in those legs, you know, the hands slide up into the armpits and eventually out to the hands. You're just holding those hands and eventually it's just one hand you're holding and then you let go and five seconds of, we all know what that's like as a parent. It's an epic event when your child learns to stand. What we find out here is that Christians have to learn how to stand. Again, look at verse two. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Now, interestingly, we find out the Thessalonian church, even though they were young in their faith, quickly were facing opposition, afflictions, persecutions, suffering. You know, just because they got saved and put their faith in Jesus didn't mean their troubles disappeared. Have you figured that out as a Christian? It's not like, oh, your troubles just vanished the second you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because, you know, they had Jesus didn't mean all of their marriage problems were fixed. Just because they had Jesus did not mean instantly all of their economic problems were fixed. Just because they had Jesus did not mean everybody in their own family became a Christian all of a sudden. Just because they had Jesus didn't mean work became easy. Those Thessalonians got saved and they made peace with God. They settled the issue of eternity. They surrendered their lives to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sins were forgiven. They received the hope of the Lord. There was new joy in their life. They had communion and relationship with their Father in heaven. But that doesn't mean life was all roses and lollipops and sugar plum fairies, did it? No, Christianity is not a song, a country song that you play backwards and get your dog back and your girlfriend back and your truck back and your horse back and a new pair of Wrangler jeans, you know. And the gospel's so quickly reduced to this, isn't it, church? Reduced to issues of health and wealth and prosperity, teaching, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Where we can just say, well, I get to serve God in the midst of my own greed and covetous now. My desire for ease. And so let me give you another key point that we learn here from what Paul is saying. And that's this. The gospel is not about ease. The gospel is not about ease. The gospel is not the promise of easy street. The gospel is the promise of God's presence in the midst of whatever you're going through. And the hope of eternity. His indwelling presence. His presence. For us, people who are unrighteous, made righteous in Christ. 
People who are sinful being forgiven and made holy in Christ. We being lawbreakers and God being just sent his son, his one and only son, who wrapped himself in human flesh, lived the perfect life, and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins so that we would not die and experience eternal separation from the Father. Rather, we'd be forgiven, that we'd be made righteous before a holy God, that we would be born again and receive the gift of a salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who calls us to God's side. It's not the promise of ease, but it is the promise of his presence. It's the promise of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the promise of the Spirit, him who calls you to his side. The presence of God is life. The gospel is good news. But Paul's life gives us a pattern that he passed on to the church, that he taught in the churches. Like, remember when Paul got saved? On that road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, that famous story, he who was persecuting the church and persecuting followers of Jesus. And as he rode to the city of Damascus, he got knocked off his high horse and he was blinded by a vision of Jesus. And Jesus told him to go and see a man named Ananias. And Jesus warned Ananias that Paul was coming. And, and Ananias is like, I don't want to meet with this guy. He's like, Lord, do you know what he's doing? He kills Christians. That's what he does. He hunts Christians. And Ananias was afraid to see Paul. But the Lord gave him a message for Paul. The Lord told him, when he comes, Ananias, I want you to say to this to him. Check it out. It'll be on the screen. Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, that is Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and, and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. Amazingly, Ananias declared to Paul how much he was going to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's not the promise of easy street. That's the promise of affliction. But it is the promise of serving Jesus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 14. Paul faced many hardships in serving Christ. One of them that's so crazy and hard for us to even imagine was this, that one time he was stoned in the city of Lystra. They tried to kill him by throwing stones at him. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. It says this, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And verse 22, this is key. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter 
the kingdom of God. I want to let you in on a little secret, you know. Ready? Don't let anybody, you know, don't tell, don't let anybody tell you different. Actually, I think it would be, well, I don't know. It's hard to hear. Your enemy is going to attack you. You have an enemy, the devil. He's the enemy of your soul. And you may suffer for your faith in Christ. You may face persecution. You may face affliction. There will be trials and afflictions. But dear friends, listen to this. Listen to what Paul tells the Thessalonians. You were destined for this. You were destined for this. Let me remind you what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And here's the good part in that. When these things come, it is, the, it is faith in Christ that will keep your feet firmly on the ground, church. Without faith in God, these things will defeat you. But with faith in God, you can stand. And that was Paul's heart for the church. That they would learn to stand in the face of affliction. You can be in the boat like those disciples were in the gospel accounts. The wind can blow and the sea can roar. But when Jesus says you're going to the other side, what's going to happen? You're going to the other side no matter what the storm does. Church, this morning I want to remind you, fear not, little child. Stand. Jesus may seem like he's asleep in the moment. But in a moment, he can rise and he can command the wind and waves and say, peace, be still. And they will cease and there will be peace. Fear not, little child. You can stand in the strong arms of your father. It might be nine months or 11 months or 17 months, but he is going to teach you to stand. So let me ask you, what's the trial you're facing right now? What's the trial? What's the storm that you are in the midst of? What is the affliction? You know, put it right at the forefront of your mind and hear this. God has not sent the trial to break you. That's not why he sent it. He did not send the trial to break you. He sent it to teach you and to train you. And to reveal to you your mindset and what is going on inside of your own heart and mind. He wants you to learn to stand. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That famous story from the book of Daniel. The greatest trial of their life. They stood. And because they stood, they were tossed into the fiery furnace of affliction. And it was in the midst of the fire that they discovered they were not alone. That Christ was present with them. And the more you learn to stand in the Lord. You must set aside fear and lay hold of faith. Lay hold of faith. You know faith is not some superstitious thing that we hold on to. Faith has substance. It's not superstitious. We can say that faith has substance. Because faith 
has a foundation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Biblical faith is, is built upon the promises of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says this to us. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, when Timothy went to work among the Thessalonians to teach them to stand, how did he do that? I mean, let's connect the dots. He proclaimed the word of the Lord to them. To stand by faith, you must increasingly hold to the promises of God. Now, obviously, you can't do that if you don't spend time in the word. You know, if Sunday is, if this is it for you, this is your one meal of the week and the word of God, then your ability to stand by faith is limited to your knowledge of the word. Actually, turn with me to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The famous parable that Jesus told about building your house on the rock. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's interesting when you read that account and you ask yourself, well, what's the rock? I mean, you know, we often want to say, well, the, the rock is Jesus, right? But that's not what the rock is in that parable. What is the rock? These words of mine, Jesus said. These words of mine. What's the difference between the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the stand? You need to read that and you ask yourself, well, did they both hear the word of God? And the answer is yes. They both heard the word of God. But one man obediently responded to the word and the other didn't. And if you're going to stand, church... In the face of the storm, in the face of affliction, then you are going to need to be established and exhorted in the faith. To be established and exhorted in the faith means this. You need the word of God hidden in your heart. You need it under your feet. This house came down. You know, we all fall down. We all fall down, but when we fall down... I want to remind you, the Father is there to get you back up on your feet again. It's a key point, another key point for this text, I think. The Father is present and ready to pick you up in the midst of your trial. You know that? You're not alone. The Father is there and ready to pick you up. And I would just say to you, church, a working knowledge of God's word is essential for your spiritual growth and stability. That's one of the reasons God established his church so that we could learn and pass on our faith. Paul sent a man to the Thessalonians, Timothy, and that man established them in the word. Look at verse 4. Again, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction 
just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Again, you know, wait a minute, I thought when I followed Christ, trouble would go away. No, uh, it just means your experience and the meaning of your trouble changes, church. You know, before Jesus, before Jesus, suffering and affliction was meaningless. It was just that, suffering and affliction. It just drove me crazy with questions. You know, why, why, why is this happening? But with Jesus, we find out this, that it has a purpose. It has a purpose that he's working, that we can trust him. And that doesn't mean I have all the answers, but it means instead of asking why in unbelief, I can say, Father, I trust you. Father, in faith, I ask, what is this for? What are you doing? Now, let me serve your purposes in the midst of this. I can say, I trust you. I know you have a purpose. And I don't like it, Lord. Father, you never said I had to like it, but I trust. I'm clinging to your promises. By faith, I believe all things work together for the good of those who are called by your name. So here I am, Lord, in the face of the storm. I'm teachable. Let's do this thing. <laughs> Make sense, church? So let me give you another key point. Affliction should never surprise you. So move into the position of trusting Christ and trusting in the promises of God in the face of that affliction. This is what Paul was concerned about. This is why Timothy was sent. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The tempter, the devil, old slewfoot, he's a snake. A roaring lion, the scripture says, an angel of light whose attacks are strategic and they're varied. And he'll come and tempt you, tempt you to doubt God's purposes and God's word. He did it to Adam and Eve right in the, in the garden. He'll tell you God is holding out on you. He'll try anything. He'll come and tell you you can be like God. And, and Affliction and suffering, what we find out here is this, is that God uses them to actually expose the devil's lies. See, when you trust God in the midst of your affliction and suffering, you find out this, you find out this, the devil is lying. And you learn, I can trust the promises of God. You find out the devil is lying. I can trust the presence of God. You find out the devil is lying. I am not like God. I actually need him to carry me through this. When you are suffering, the devil will come and he will seek to exploit that which you are going through. He tried that move on Jesus, you know. Weakened by hunger after 40 days of fasting. The devil came and tried to exploit him. He tried to exploit Job's suffering to get him to curse God. Satan will exploit your suffering and your affliction and he will encourage you throw in the towel. He'll exploit your church frustrations. He'll exploit your people frustrations. You know, you'll get so mad at people, you say, that's it, I'm done with them. Don't be duped. Learn to stand. Learn to stand. And Paul carried fatherly concern that even before the Thessalonians had learned to stand, they might actually be paralyzed by Satan's lies. 
paralyzed faith, crippled Christians. Church, rise in the name of Jesus. Some of you have been paralyzed by lies. It's of the devil. And Christ Jesus is present in the midst of your affliction. Christ Jesus is present in the midst of the things that you are going through. Jesus is present and he can heal and he can speak to the wind and the waves in a moment. By faith, stand up. So when it was time, Timothy returned to Paul. We read this in verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What was the report Timothy brings back? Hey, Paul, the kids are standing, man. They're standing. You know, they wobble. Once in a while they fall. There's persecution. There's affliction. There's trials and suffering. It's real. But they're standing. They're standing in faith. And what was Paul's response? He was comforted. He actually personally received back that which he sent. You know, he sent Timothy to comfort them. And Timothy came back and he brought to Paul a word of comfort. And look what he says in verse 8. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. I mean, this news refreshed Paul. It brought life and vitality to his relationship with Jesus. It brought life and vitality to his ministry. It renewed his hope in the work of the Lord. You know, I'm reminded of what, what John said in 3 uh, John verse 4. John said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. True of our physical children and true of our spiritual children. So Paul was comforted. You know, uh, somebody called me last week and they're like, hey, I just want to, I just wanted to let you know, man, uh, one of your old youth kids, uh, he got, he got ordained in the church where he's serving. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I remember when that kid came to our church in Surrey, he got saved in our youth group and became a leader. And, uh, you know, the first night he was at youth group, I probably told this story before, but we were running, playing capture the flag in the church. I came running around one corner. He came running around the other corner, head to head. I met his mother at the hospital, you know, because he went down and he got the worst of it, by the way. Not me. He got the worst of it. And uh, he's serving. He's serving the Lord. And I thought, wow, praise God. Praise God. That brings me great joy. Recently, someone that was connected to our church in the past sent me an email and they just said, hey, I just want you to know I'm standing in Christ. I'm going on and serving the Lord. And I'm hoping when I'm in your area next week, connect for coffee. I'm like, wow, praise God. You know, let me ask you this. Have you communicated with those who have influenced you spiritually? Have you said to them, I just want you to know I'm standing in Christ. Those things that you taught me, the way that you stood and sought to support me. I've faced trouble. I've faced trouble. I've had affliction. But I want you to know, Jesus has not let go of me and I'm not letting go of him. I'm standing in Christ. Well, I would encourage you. Maybe you need to reach out and tell somebody that. 
I was just having a conversation beforehand. You know, we got our Valor, before church, we got our Valor Boys Club happening, which I just love. When I was a young man, we had a boys club in our church. And that man back there, Gordon Chalier, led it. And Gordon, I'm standing in the Lord. I just want you to know. I'm standing firm in Christ. Is there someone that God would call you to communicate to them to say, I am standing in Christ. That report brought Paul joy, lit a fire under him. Look at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul said this, man, as news came back to him, he's like, I owe God thanksgiving. I owe it to God. This is exciting. Paul's prayer life was ignited by the report that Timothy brought back. In fact, Timothy's report allowed Paul to get specific and to get fervent in the place of prayer. I would tell you this. You want to know how to encourage someone in prayer? Then be specific. Say, I'm standing in the Lord. Now, would you pray this for me? There were some things that Paul prayed in this prayer. I want to point them out to you. First one is this. Paul prayed that they'd see one another again. That it would be face to face. It's great to get a report, but it's so nice to see one another face to face, isn't it? Paul said, I don't want just a report. I want to see you again. And he got the chance on his next missionary journey. Secondly, Paul prayed this. He said, I, I pray, Father, that you would supply whatever is lacking in their faith. Father, you know the lack. I don't know the lack. I pray that you would supply that it is lacking. And I pray that you would use me to help bring that supply into their life. And so Paul was praying that their faith might mature. That what was lacking might be supplied. His hope was that he could personally do some some of that work. He's saying, God, use me more. Don't be done with me. Use me more in this person's life. And God did answer his prayer. He was able to return there. May he supply what is lacking in their faith. You know, here's the thing about faith. Faith has to be tested, church. There's that great, there's that great saying that a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. God brings you tests so you would know where your own relationship is at with him. God tries your faith and he tests your faith not to destroy it, but to grow it, to develop it. God tries our faith not so that we would fail, but so that we would have a clear picture of where we're actually at. That's what tests are all about. <laughs> Back when your teachers gave you tests, they didn't want you to fail, did they? Well, you might have had the odd teacher who wanted you to fail. But your teachers didn't want you to fail. They wanted you to have a clear picture of where you were actually at with the material you were learning. That's why God gives tests of faith. Think about Abraham. He's gone down in history as the man of faith. But when you think about his story, called the Canaan, leaves his father's home, he arrives in that land, and when he gets there, there's a famine, and he Deeks out and he goes to Egypt. Failed the test. Each step of his journey, God led him to a place where his faith was tested. God didn't want to sink him. God wanted to expose what was in his own heart. 
Whether it was dealing with his nephew Lot, his wife and her concubine, or his son Ishmael, Isaac's sacrifice, Abraham grew in his ability to express and exercise faith in God. Had he never walked in faith, clinging to the promise that God would fulfill his promise and give him offspring, and that he would see the fulfillment of that, how would he have ever gotten to the place where he could trust God enough that he would say, okay, I'll take my son to that mountain? Believing that God would raise him from the dead if it was necessary. Faith has to be tested. And so may God supply whatever's lacking in your faith. Now, verse 11, we'll wrap up pretty quick here. Now, may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul prayed this, that your love would increase, that it would abound. A growing faith should result in a growing love for God and a growing love for others. And, and when you are in the midst of trials and sufferings, I think one of two things happen. It, one is this, in self-centered kind of pity, you turn inward. Build walls around yourself. You slip into the vacuum of being, you know, caught in that self-centered absorption. Or the second option is this. Rather than build walls, you begin to reach out to people. You begin to build bridges towards God and towards people. When you are in... When you are in affliction and suffering, it, it doesn't always come natural. But I would say this, don't pull back. <laughs> Press in. Press in. Many times when I think of people who have, have suffered trials and tribulations, those who build bridges towards God's people have the blessing of being with the body. People to share their stuff. People who will minister to them and love and pray for them. And then verse 13, Paul says this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Uh, the next point of Paul's prayer here that I see is this, is there a request that God would establish their hearts in blamelessness in holiness. Again, um, we're going to see this all the way through Thessalonians. Every chapter ends with a mention of the second coming of Christ. It's very interesting. And in this chapter, uh, the coming of Christ is linked to personal holiness. The holiness of the church. Because an expectant attitude towards the return of Christ naturally leads a believer to holiness. It's like, well, if he's coming, I want to be ready. It's like, you know. When my wife's been away for a few days, my house, I'm a better cleaner than ever than when my wife has been away for a couple days. Like next weekend, she's going away. I'm like, oh, shoot. Now I got work to do. So I'm going to have to make sure the house is really clean. An expectant attitude towards Christ's coming naturally leads to you cleaning up. Church, Christ is coming. The king is coming. And it's a great motivator to to live for him. You know, the truth is you never know what a day will bring, right? Like it might bring affliction. It might bring suffering. And it might bring the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so whatever happens, let us pray that what today brings will deepen our faith, increase our love, open our eyes to God's truth, and in reality of Christ, may we all mature and learn to stand. Amen? God, teach us to stand. So would you stand with me? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord, this morning, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that we'd be men and women, a church that stands, that stands, Lord, that learns to stand. Father, we've been busy crawling and living like those who are immature. Would you forgive us of that? And Lord, this morning, just before you in our hearts, we just say we desire to grow, Lord. We desire to partner with you. We want to learn to stand in the faith. And so, Father, I pray for your people that you'd increase their love for one another, that you would bless them. Father, for those that are in, in the midst of affliction and suffering, I pray, God, that your presence would be very clear to them and that you'd show them the way out. I pray, God, that if it's a storm that needs you to speak, that you would speak and say, peace be still. Father, I ask you to do that. Father, if it's a storm that you want to take them all the way through, then God, I pray that they would have the eyes, the maturity, the faith to say, Lord, I'm, I'm looking to you in the midst of this, and may they experience the comfort of your presence. God, grow us. We pray again that you would make us mature men and women who stand in Christ. Amen.